0: You're listening to Soccer Report Extra with Bobby McMahon and Owen O'Callaghan.
1: Welcome to this week's edition of the Soccer Report Extra podcast. I'm Bobby McMahon. He is a very, very sick Owen O'Callaghan. I suspect, (laughs) I suspect he's suffering from post-Olympic flu. Ah, such a shame, isn't it? That is all done and dusted. The Americans won the curling. I know. See, see, the thing is, I remember, I can even remember the days, God, I'm saying this an awful lot nowadays, <laughs> but I can remember the days when, actually, the Americans used to be quite good at curling. Mm. Like, when the old days of the Air Canada Soul were broom back in the 70s and 80s. The Americans, when I say the Americans, I'm not quite sure that's accurate. Were they Canadians really who lived in was, Minnesota, basically? N- no, it was kind of Minnesota and North Dakota, and maybe Wisconsin. Wow. I don't think they came from any place else, like there's a, you know, just like you said there's not a lot of ice rinks in Ireland, perhaps none at all, let's face it, there's not a lot of ice rinks in Alabama or Tennessee either
2: yeah I'm and, willing to bet yeah and and I, I just it, it was kind of funny with the winter games because um I'm not sure if our listeners uh, who are obviously so enamored at the fact that right now we're not talking about football but talking about winter games um is the American curling team uh, who actually tweeted Delta Airlines yeah to say hey Delta we're Olympic champions you may have seen it any chance of an upgrade when we fly back home and Delta went no <laughs> fuck off. Your curlers? <laughs> Can you imagine that? P.R. Delta just couldn't give a shit. Sorry if if, if there's any employees of Delta Airlines listening to our podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, it was they were, a great they were too p-
1: busy. They were put too busy dealing with their
2: NRA situation. Yes, or like what, when they dragging people, the, dragging, uh, tra- and, and dragging people off flights. Wasn't that wasn't that Delta as well? Was that United? was that the Delta as well?
1: Oh, I missed that track, back, don't you, after a while. Yeah, you do. So anyway, so we've got Owen recovering from his post-Olympic blues, seeing that's all over for another, I guess, two years to the summer. And where are we going? We're going to Tokyo in 2020. 2022 is Beijing. 2024 is Paris. 226 has yet to be decided. And two thousand twenty eight is in Los Angeles. So just before we go, you mentioned curling, so... I must admit I did not watch any games on Saturday because I was too busy watching rugby. I was, uh, I could not resist watching the Calcutta Cup and Scotland playing England. I'd resigned myself to the fact that we were probably going to get a kick in. But actually Scotland played very well and they beat England for the first time in about 10 years. And it was a really good game. So that's my bit. Do you want to talk
2: about soccer now? Well, I mean, we could turn it into a rugby podcast if you want, just kind of like as a bonus special edition for our listeners. um, Well, it it would remind you, it'd probably bring back
1: bad memories for you watching Everton Watford. Oh, good grief.
2: I mean, I thought that I was doing the right thing. You know, I'm I'm kind of under the weather at the moment. And I was like, oh, well, at least it gives me the chance of watching, you know, maybe two teams that I don't get to watch a lot of. And you quickly quickly remind yourself of why you don't (laughs) fucking watch them. it was the most pitiful display I mean you were watching a rugby a couple of lads playing in this game could have done a job for either Scotland or England because it was well, like that's that's an hour and 45 minutes of my life I won't get back do you know what I mean you feel like that's writing a strongly regret, worded letter to both clubs and saying you know what can you do for me because I mean this is absolutely disgraceful um, Everton really really struggling what do, you, what, what, what do you think your answer would be from Big Sam I think the second one would be off
1: It'd probably about be pretty close to Delta's <laughs> yes. response to the curlers, right? I think
2: so. Yeah, around that similar sort of um, similar area. Um, but, but you I, did. But you did watch West Ham and Liverpool, though, didn't you? So that must have made
1: you feel a little bit better.
2: Yes, I did actually, and and Liverpool were good. Um, it was it was you know they they're almost euphoric at times. I mean they got a hatful midweek and racked up another four um, against a West Ham team that were that were gamely for for a little uh-huh. bit of the of, of 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 the actual fixture and then Liverpool's class just really just came to the fore and ultimately you watch at uh, two teams and um, the gulf between them is just absolutely astonishing um in terms of uh, I mean West Ham did get a, a really nice goal on the break um Antonio had just come off the bench and you know he, he, he scored to pull it back to three1 and you always kind of tell yourself is there a shock on the cards here and then Mane scored you know, <laughs> Pull know about out, 15 minutes Pull out the same cliches that the, the commentators pull out. Yeah I mean they're really going big on the fact that oh it's Premier League box office this is uh, and it's not really it's just one team at <laughs> no, a canter winning a game um, but uh, Salah once again on the score sheet absolutely incredible um, surely uh, player of the year yeah um, best player in the
1: premier league since thierry henry
2: ooh um that's what piers morgan thinks
1: <laughs> <laughs> so <it's laughs> Well I was actually got, waiting uh, I was
2: actually waiting for a reference to like you know a kind of a highly regarded intellectual kind of football figure and then he hit me with Piers. Piers
1: Morgan is to soccer what he is to insightful journalism. My
2: favourite Piers Morgan story is when he was a host. Uh, this is you know what, when people do follow Piers Morgan on Twitter, you know, and, and the guys that are also listening to podcasts, a little thing to put in context about Piers Morgan. There was a time when he was a host of Britain's Got Talent when he sat there as a judge and had to listen to a man come out on stage and fart along to the Blue Danube. <laughs> so when... St- that, like, that is a genuine thing if that he's happened. going to do
1: that, I think I'd pick, pick another piece. <laughs> I'm not sure the Blue Danube would be my pick for that.
2: Um, so just hey, whenever appears Morgan pops up on Twitter with an absolutely staggeringly analytical perspective on something, just, dear listeners, remind yourself... That this is the same man, you know, who also was 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 one of the judges on Britain's Got Talent when that absolutely iconic moment occurred. Um, so yeah, good old Piers. Uh, but anyway, yeah, back to um, back to Liverpool. Um, Mo Salah, Mo Salah. Um, he's he, the the impact he's had has been astonishing, and when put in the context of other players. Uh, who have who have uh, you know essentially a lot of big things are said about them, uh, and and they have struggled um, to to properly pull the trigger and and, and deliver. He has been astonishing. Um, his calmness in in front of goal is 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 incredible. And also, when Liverpool get it right, they get it very right. And you know that that fluidity and that movement in the final third, um, they've got it down to a, a really great science. Um, you know, Salah will will drop a little bit deeper. Uh, they'll kind of all squeeze up but then Firmino makes that run into the channel and he pulls that defense apart and then Salah is able to attack some space and it's you know it's uh, you know obviously you've got money to throw in there as well you've got a little bit of a steady foundation in other parts of the field um, and it, it all worked a bit of a treat on Saturday um, just that one little setback where Antonio scored really from absolutely nothing um which was probably a slight concern uh but once uh, Emre Chan put them on their way on around the half hour mark from a set piece uh yes i mean this was one thing uh, about that set piece i'm going to bring this back when we talk about man city in a little while um adrian was the west ham goalkeeper for this game and emre chan scored with a header from from this kind of whipped in corner but there is much to be said about whether or not Adrian was actually uh, being obstructed. Um, I can't remember who it was who was standing right in front of him. Uh, now, obviously, you also look at goalkeepers in terms of using a bit of physicality to actually just push anyone out of the way to try and get. And also, he didn't really seem interested in actually making a move towards the cross. Uh, he, he, you know, there, there was no kind of even effort to to push and be aggressive to try and reach it when it was very, very close to him. Um, now. You know, maybe uh, West Ham fans will say I'm being a bit harsh um, but that was just the one thing uh, after that it was Liverpool very very easy and yeah just another reminder that when they're in the zone it's uh, pretty nice to watch
1: Yeah, uh, just that Mo, mo- Salah like, I, I, I'm, ha- I'm hard pushed to f- remember players who are so calm there's, there's definitely a bit of the Romario about Ooh, yeah. I mean, obviously Romario wasn't as left footed but that, um, even more so than kind of an Aguero, there's a there's a bit of a Romario about Aguero at times, but it's more he's he's running at defenders. But when you get in that box, he is just so... You talk about strikers that have ice flowing through their veins, but uh, Salah's like that, and he, he does remind me of Romario. Uh, Eduardo, before he had that bad injury mm-hmm. against Birmingham, was a bit like that as well. You just had a feeling that when the ball dropped to his feet, that was going to finish up in the net, and that's that's the feeling you get with Salah at the moment. Um, you know, everything's going to go in.
2: Yeah, to put it in context as well, um, I think maybe Luke will correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, at the end of the pod, he now has Salah as many goals this season as Luis Suarez had in two thousand and fourteen. Yes, um, except so, oh, except
1: there's a cut, there's a there's a there's a little bit of a caveat on that one, unless you're going to give me the caveat.
2: I, I'm not. I'm not. I just uh, I thought that I heard that over the weekend somewhere.
1: Yeah, I'm going to bring in the uh, Sidlow TM caveat mm. on that one. Um, you got to remember that that was the year that Suarez missed the first 10 games. Aha. So Why was that? actually when you're... Uh, 14
2: yeah, why did he miss those games? Actually, we probably shouldn't get into that. Uh, cause
1: he Because he took a bite out of a, um, the Chelsea Ivanovic. Ivanovic, would not it? Yeah. Um, so actually, both at this state, uh, both uh, Suarez played 37 games that year and scored 31 goals. And Salas played 37 games and scored 31 goals. So the actual tweet that people have been putting out there makes Suarez, it makes Suarez look kind of bad. But the reality is that you know he's on track with what Suarez did. Cause I think there was an injury to Suarez as well that season as well. But he did miss the first ten games, so it's re- not really an apples to apples comparison. So that's my caveat. Mm,
2: I'd agree with that. Okay. Yeah, no, and I also uh, I would like to reference uh, almost a staggering moment of genius in this game from uh, Marco Arnautovic. Yes, um, he was slipped in into that right channel in the first half. And you kind of thought, oh, he's he's pushed a bit wide. There's no chance that he's going to get a shot away. And he just absolutely dinks this lofted lob um, over the head of Carrius and uh, dropped off the crossbar. And it was just a really, really delicate little moment. And uh, again, you know, kind of fine moments, I guess, if that goes in. uh, You may have had uh, a little bit of a different game. Obviously, that was West Ham's system, right? They tried to... To condense and then uh, Joe Mario, uh, Lancini, Arnautovic would all kind of push on to try and, to try and create something on the break. Um, you know, it's obviously how the goal came eventually, um, but uh, just earlier on, he was very, very unlucky. He's been um, surprisingly good for West Ham, Arnautovic I had my doubts when he made that move, but uh, you have to put your hand up and say, you know, credit to him.
1: I think Moy's arrival has made a big difference, I think, because I think Moy's, whether it's forced or otherwise, or whether he actually does have faith in him, but he hasn't got. F- much option apart from uh, putting a lot of faith, I think, in uh, in the player as well. He's go, he goes back to the days of uh, I believe even uh, Mourinho enter, and he's one of these guys with fantastic talent, not a lot of consistency. and And perhaps you know when he's on, he's on, but he it's it's that lack of consistency that hurts him. And West Ham did pay a whack load of money mm-hmm. to get him last summer, so anyway that brings us to the end of part one and in part two we'll be moving to some action from Sunday
0: you're listening to Soccer Report Extra keep up to speed with the podcast and get all the latest news musings and rants from Bobby and Owen by liking us on Facebook at Soccer Report Extra now back to the show
1: big Sunday standoff with Crystal Palace and Spurs don't think you saw that game did you I didn't, I didn't. No, I I caught the latter stages of it, and I have this, you know, Spurs Spurs should be paying me, because I've got this habit of whenever I tune in a Spurs game they score, and sure enough that's what happened on Sunday. I didn't really catch much of the game, but I tuned tuned in for the last three or four minutes, and um, let's let's say let's just say Roy Hodgson was not happy he'd uh, taken off James Tompkins put on uh, Delaney Delaney got himself turned round something awful at a corner Kane Kane put in a actually a a speculative header I would describe it as and Wayne Hennessy suddenly I have no idea what he was trying to do but it really wasn't that difficult to save. he could have easily parried it he could have even perhaps caught it he, he just looked surprised at the ball coming back to him and boom it's in the net Spurs get a big win and uh, Roy Hodgson finds Crystal Palace. And this is a thing I think you got to watch at this time of year. Is Palace are slipping back into trouble again. Swansea have done the same thing. Mm. Like a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at, well, Palace are beginning to move up the table. Swansea are on a run. You look at the table now, Crystal Palace are 17th. Swansea City are 18th. And they're back in trouble.
2: Well, all it takes is for you to slide into that little dip doesn't it and it's particularly this time yeah. of year as well where you know it, it's suddenly you're looking around your shoulder a little bit and you, you know when you're losing games in the 88th minute from a scrappy winner from the opposition yeah. after probably like you know digging in your heels a little bit and delivering up a, you know a, a solid performance and you're probably going to get a point off a high profile Premier League side and then that happens then you're probably yeah. you know it probably adds to that sort of sense of Jesus God we're really in a scrap here again now
1: and you've got Newcastle uh, conceding the two late goals to Bournemouth as well on Saturday. Jeez, uh, that must be driving Rafa Benitez crazy as Newcastle's seem to have this innate ability to, to turn three points into one and one point into zero at times. And, you know, they're just hovering above that danger zone at the moment. They're only two points, out, two points away. Perhaps the only thing going for them in Southampton at the moment is they've got pretty good goal differences minus 11 minus 12 while other teams in the relegation zone are all minus 20s and and upwards so but uh, do you think do you think think Newcastle are going to be able to pull this one out
2: well you would you would look at Benitez as a key figure in it and say you know you know he would bring um, experience to this uh, sort of Newcastle site but to be honest when these incidents happen you know, the first thing that you think about is the fragility, right? I mean, it's it's just these players just not being able to see out games, and there's a professionalism to that. There's a way of of handling it when the opposition's going to throw everything at you. You have to be organised. You have to be yeah. um, gritty. You have to you have to be uh, uh, prepared for an onslaught, and and I just think that I mean, you see so many teams of that calibre, that in those la- latter stages of games, it's just like pinball in a penalty area. There's, you know, everybody retreats to, you know, the 18-yard line, and they just brace themselves for what it, and and you're just you're just bringing it on yourself. There's no sense of control. There's no sense of calm. Um, so when that stuff starts to happen, you know, the, the those positives that you would look at in in terms of a Benitez-like figure, it kind of don't really matter anymore. Um, you know, because ultimately it comes down to the quality on a pitch, and and you're looking at guys to to stand up and lead, and you know, you know, ensure that this sort of stuff, these scrappy little errors, don't happen. Um, but when they do, like to what you just said, it feeds into that uh, psychology of of a struggling team, yeah. Uh, and and this time of year, when you're looking around you, everything becomes concertinaed and these two points that you drop could really really be costly come the end of a campaign
1: well you look at uh, basically if Newcastle had held on there you know looked like it was a bit of a smash and grab in terms of being two nothing up but um, even so you know you you win that game you go 31 points Bournemouth go down you know you catch Bournemouth at that stage and you actually go above Bournemouth and you're sitting 11th in the table Now you're sitting 15th and you're just a couple of points, behind. This is where it's really going. We're down to our last 10, essentially our last 10 games now, apart from a make-up game on Thursday. And this is where I think things really are going to get interesting because I think some of the, the top teams are going to be surprised as the, the, as the group, and there is a large group of potentially relegation uh, teams at the moment, are just going to dig in that little bit harder and make it a little bit more difficult. So I think uh, we're in for a very interesting last 10 games. But an interesting game on Sunday was Manchester United coming from behind to beat, um, to beat Chelsea 2-1. Um, sort of picked up perhaps the challenge laid down by Liverpool by their win on Saturday and then Tottenham uh, putting a little bit of pressure on them Tottenham sitting on 55, Liverpool sitting on 57 and going in this game, Manchester United uh, were sitting on 56 but uh, they did it and I'm, I'm not sure uh, should we be giving credit to Manchester United and Mourinho or, or should we be asking big questions of Chelsea and again after that uh, excellent display against Barcelona um some doubts are raised about Chelsea's application and uh, and their ability to, to uh finish in perhaps well, certainly in the top four.
2: Well it was Jekyll and, and Hyde from them. Yeah. You know, I thought that they were really, really excellent in that first half. Um but I think they struggled. Great goal. Uh, fantastic. Uh, but I think they struggled uh, uh in terms of not capitalizing in their early dominance Morata. Smashing one off the crossbar from close range. I mean that if that goes yeah. in, suddenly you really have laid down the gauntlet for United because United took an absolute eternity to get out of the traps. Um, so they, for, for some of their players, it looked like they had no clear understanding of what the plan was. Um, you know because Chelsea were were looking to to be expansive, um, pull those uh, wing backs as wide as they could go to open up that space, isolate the likes of Moses with Ashley Young, um, obviously. You know, Marco Alonso um, putting in that cross for Morata was another example of of them kind of trying to succeed in in wide areas. And United just really for a large portion of that first half had no idea of how to combat it. Um, mm. So now obviously United managed to get back in the game, but I mean for that for for the majority of that first half, I was looking at the game and thinking, this is United at home here and if you were watching this as a kind of a, as a Joe Bloggs as a novice of the game you would have presumed that Chelsea were playing in, in, their, in their own backyard because of the way that they attacked yeah. the game um, well and the, the, the,
1: the, the, that first half especially like if there was a team that's going to score it was going to be Chelsea like they, they enjoyed the better position they created more chances they looked dangerous they were they were just generally a team in control um, but then it then it all turned around
2: and yeah I mean listen Lukaku is probably always going to get stick. Um, you know, l- l- when the I think it was probably what ninety ninety plus minutes in the game, he took off on a sprint that brought United really really high up the pitch, and he got absolutely lauded for it. And I remember yeah. l- talking to the TV screen as they were like, "Look at this from Lukaku! Oh, he's, uh, what he's done for the cl- for the team here is amazing! Brought him so," and I was like, "Well, he hasn't moved for the previous ninety ninety odd minutes." I mean, you know, in terms of that, you know, in terms of putting a shift in, he's not really that sense that that type of number nine. Um, so what he is is exactly how was exactly what the goal was. Um, he's a guy who may miss one or two chances, but there is a, a, a composure to how he can finish. Um, in terms of a little routine with Martial, it was nice. Sanchez was involved as well. It was very very tight. Um, But in terms of absolutely frustrating Chelsea, what a thing to manage to do, because it came from absolutely nothing, and United suddenly were were right back in it, and they hadn't even laid a glove on Chelsea up to that point, and I'm not even sure if they had even hinted at a shot on goal up to that, they they hadn't really tested Courtois. Maybe, did Lukaku have the, the ambitious scissors kick? Was that before he scored or was it afterwards? Um, you kind of lose count of, of, of uh, how the game developed. But um, And from there, obviously, um, you had Mourinho be very smart in that second half. And in contrast to that, Chelsea just absolutely disappeared. Um, you're trying to figure out just what had happened. But, you know, suddenly the, the crisp passing... Uh, the one-twos, the movement uh, the clarity of of what you were doing suddenly became very, very muddled Um, and obviously that was a a little bit United's plan as well, to just break up uh, their play as much as possible, Matic uh, he was lucky, he had had a a nibble at a few different Chelsea players and and I think it was probably very, very late when he picked up uh, up a yellow card eventually Um, but they were smart Pogba developed more um, and flourished more in that second half Uh, and then Jesse Lingard sprung from the bench and took his goal really, really well. And even, even at that stage, you were expecting Chelsea to rally, to try and offer something. And you know, it was very, very odd. You know, they, they emptied the bench in terms of um, attacking options, and they brought Giroud on. Yeah. And never once did they send in a cross looking for his forehead. I, I, you know, I was watching it, thinking, why if they brought Giroud on to partner Morata and go two up top, and I, I, I'd struggle to remember if Giroud actually had a meaningful touch. Um, after he came into nothing, the game, nothing comes to um, my mind. Yeah, so it, it was just—I just think it was symptomatic of what happened Chelsea in that second half, where they just really lost the run of themselves in in terms of uh, maybe it's a, a kind of a similarity to United in that first half, where suddenly things that you were very very sure of in that opening period, now you're not. Now you start second guessing yourself, and obviously as well, I think they probably expended a lot of energy. The likes of Willian, Azar in that first half um, certainly weren't as impactful and influential after the break um so I think that they had a, a huge opportunity in that opening 45 to to put up uh, at least two goals maybe even three um and and when when that didn't happen and, and Lukaku got that goal back I think it was pretty deflating for them
1: but you look at uh, you look you take a look at Chelsea what they've got to uh, they're going to go through until the end of the season now. Uh, obviously they're, they're, they're still in the FA Cup they're still in Champions League we've got that uh, second leg against Barcelona coming up in, in uh, mid-March but they go to City um, this Sunday they then play Crystal Palace um, they have to play Burnley but that game's going to be um, postponed and, and rescheduled because of the FA Cup um, so they've got l- Leicester and the FA Cup away. That's not an easy game, I would suggest, for them. They've got Chelsea at home. Or sorry, they've got Tottenham at home in the Premier League on April Fool's Day. They've got then West Ham at home. Southampton away. Huddersfield at home. That's not too bad run. Swansea away, that's not too bad. But then the finish with Liverpool uh, at Stamford Bridge. And then the last day of the season, they're away at Newcastle. That's not a particularly easy run-in, though, for the top four and I very strongly suspect that Chelsea financially, Chelsea survived um the shortfall from Champions League money um during that horrible, following that horrible year from Mourinho, the year that won the the league last year last season but they also sold a lot of players now, they've got uh, the money from Diego Costa this year but that's not really going to help, that's not going to help next year um Chelsea are going to have to sell some players again, I think, to be able to comply with financial fair play. They've still they've got their, this issue with building <laughs> their, their was it a billion dollar stadium, billion pound stadium now? Something like that. That's going to take a long, long time. So I think from a financial point of view, it's going to be very interesting to see how Chelsea deal with this situation
2: um, over the next few years. So they're probably also going to be in the summer looking for a new coach as well.
1: Yes yeah because I don't think uh, I think we agree that Conte is unlikely to be there uh, this come come August of uh, 2018 it just seems like a natural parting of the ways so anyway that brings us then to part two we'll be back with part three in a couple of seconds
0: you're listening to Soccer Report Extra with Bobby McMahon and Owen O'Callaghan be sure to follow them both on Twitter links are in the show notes below now back to the show wasn't the Premier League, but it
1: was the Carabao Cup final on Sunday, Manchester City 3, Arsenal 0 and I think it's fair to say Owen that there was never a moment in that game where there should have been any doubt that Manchester City were not going to win this game. There might have been some controversy over the first goal,
2: but City were just so far ahead of Arsenal it wasn't funny. Um, they had one chance, uh, the, when, when when they broke with Ozil on the right, he sent in that cross that was behind Obama Yang. Yeah. And uh, Kyle Walker dived in and Obama Yang just couldn't force it through. Um, that was it. If uh, if, yep. if that goes in and if they're able to score that, you know, maybe it would have given them a little bit of a foundation, but going by how the rest of that game played out and just how far they were from City for the entire game, you, you actually probably feel that even if that did find the net... City would just roll their sleeves up and pick them off bit by bit um, because it, at times it was embarrassing to be honest you know you thought to yourself this is a Wembley final and yeah it's a league cup and, and obviously um, it's not uh, necessarily many clubs priorities but you know when you're Arsenal particularly you're there you may as well win it exactly when you're Arsenal particularly <laughs> um, they, all, they know all about stemming the, the, the bleeding um, from going out and picking up uh, a piece of silverware every once in a while um, it doesn't change everything, but it does momentarily give your fans something to cheer about, which is really, really crucial in terms of 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 what the situation that they find themselves in right now. Um, but I really, you know, I always think about finals and, and players involved in finals. That when you come off after after the end of it, you know, do do you have regrets about about how the game played played out? And you look at those Arsenal players. I mean, they didn't even get going. This is a final.
1: No, yeah, they're, they're running, they're running sand right from the beginning. And remember, that's the that's uh, in the last two of the last three performances. The, the 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 Europa League performance was awful. But remember, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, it was Tottenham at Wembley, uh, and it was a pretty dire performance there as well. And there was a lot of similarities, I thought, between the two the two performances. and as much as in neither game did Arsenal for one minute look like they were going to win it, or even get them away with a tie in it. It just wasn't there, and like we we talked about Jose Mourinho um, last week, and my my comment about was I don't see where the plan is in terms of signing, and I don't know I don't see how this all fits together. I have the same comment on Arsenal. I don't see where the signings fit together here, and you know the the pressure is going to mount on Wenger again, and rightfully so because I just. I, I just think it's got I can't remember who once said it but somebody once said that you you get to a point as a manager where all you've got is bad decisions left in you and I think Arsene Wenger's at that stage now I think Arsenal fans need to be given hope, I said at the end of last year, even after they won the cup, I thought that was the time you should have gone and I've been very much a pro Wenger um, person for a long long time I think he deserves a lot more credit that he's given but I just don't see any way back at the moment like, You know, maybe they pull someone out of the heart in terms of Europa League, but they're playing a, an inspired Milan team in the next round which is not going to be easy and I just don't like. I look at that back three, I look at a back four I just don't know what he's trying to achieve at some points, it's like he throws guys out in hopes and just hopes that someone sort of comes
2: together Well I think that, you know, even the team selection, Callum Chambers back in that team Yeah you know that was that was one strange decision. The other one is, but the other thing that's probably worth pointing out is the, you know, you you have I think probably other people more eloquent than me have talked about it before, which is the the Arsenalitis, so that you you know you have someone like Mustafi who's been a really you know obviously at an international level uh, a really highly regarded defender, and suddenly in a league cup final against manchester city he looks like some bloke who has been signed by arsenal for a couple of footballs and um you know a couple of vouchers to tga friday you know uh, some bloke who's just won a competition to be there you know um and you're thinking to yourself this is an established international caliber footballer uh world cup winner um so that there that that's also the huge issue for arsenal now it, it's once this sort of feeling and once this sort of attitude clouds this club it's very very difficult it's been there for a while now and they've managed to paper the cracks uh with with a couple of those fa cup victories but um when you're now going out on a big wembley afternoon and you know obviously a lot's been made in the aftermath of gary neville's commentary um for for sky and, and and some of the terms that he was using which you know, probably a little bit overboard, something like the the term spineless is is, is kind of a pretty angry term, but uh, I mean you do take a lot of the points that he was making, um, on board. the, the whole fact that this is this is a, a a championship day out. This is something that you've got your family in the stands and your kids cheering you on and um, people travel to you know, get, have a really good experience. And the minute that third goal is scored, Arsenal fans are leaving the stadium. I can't I i I'm not sure how many minutes were left when Silva scored that third one, but When you have Arsenal fans leaving that early at Wembley... Ah, goodness me. I mean, you you talk about the ill that's in the club... And, you know, nothing said that. But there's not even a hint of hope... That a club uh, can turn around a situation... That's obviously incredibly um, rough... And and probably unlikely that you're going to get... But, in fairness... Can you not at least... Pull a goal back? Can you not at least rally a little bit... You know, can you not get your foot on the ball and just try to have some sort of imprint on this game? Instead, it completely passed them by. I mean, I know that. Yeah. Um, you know, the, there's, there's, and you know, I'd even argue as well as for the second goal. Um, you know, there's, there's possibly. Um, you know, some a point that you could make about a goalkeeper's eye line being blocked uh, by nah, a player. And, nah, you know, you don't, that would be soft. Yeah, I'm, i I nah, you know that. Nah, yeah. Those are the things that you end up looking for, right? I mean, those are the. Uh, and I'm sure Wenger was doing that in his, in his press conference afterwards. He was trying to look for excuses ultimately, um, things that could have been uh, given in a different way, and suddenly things weren't as bad. The thing is that it was still one-nil at half time. It was the absolute basic errors. That they made after the break, that absolutely destroyed. I mean, how can he not be, uh, you know, aware of, of uh, a set piece routine? Like, there's a Man City player um, who's standing so far, like outside where all of your bodies are. Nobody thinks for one second that it's been lined up as as a little bit of a corner routine. Um, you know, the reactions are so slow, um, and from there, it's just, it's it's just absolute. I mean, you know, I said to you before we started recording, like watching the game. You know, from behind your hands, because it, it like uh, th- when it was three nil. I mean, it could have gone very, very bad if if City wanted it to. They could have really, really opened the floodgates. You can't even look uh, to it.
1: You can't even look to the game and say, you know, they, here are two or three Manchester City players that were absolutely brilliant.
2: Um, they didn't have to be brilliant. Uh, y- they just went out and did the job. Yeah, I think it was probably what six or seven out of ten. I mean they were they were certainly in third gear. I mean they they I mean yeah n- none of the goals they scored were uh 45 pass build up. Um you know where you could think oh th- these guys are just on a different on a different planet. I mean it's a stratospheric difference between the two. It was roll the sleeves up, get the job done. That was it. Yeah. I mean it would I mean they 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 barely broke a sweat to be honest. I mean, they they didn't, uh, I mean, Bravo, you know, there was a moment where he gave them a little bit of concern when he raced out um, Mm. and made a hash of an attempted clearance, uh, briefly gave a Bamiyang a sniff, but um, outside of that, it was was very, very easy for them, which I think is probably the most damning thing of all, I mean, when you say that, uh, Mm. a final between supposed rivals, uh, even though I think we can all acknowledge that they're certainly not rivals anymore, um when there's absolutely nothing in terms of spice to this uh there's nothing in terms of um aggression physicality nothing in terms of uh the opposition wanting to wanting to change the narrative it was just so flat everything about the arsa performance was ponderous um laborious nothing was sticking no sense of desire um and obviously, as well behind that, you had a defence that was just so fragile. Um, you know, they they just they just always looked capable of, of coughing up more chances for City. I
1: read an article last week, and I once again I can't remember who it was. I read so many so many things every week, but um, the the piece was what's happened to the Arsene Wenger ability to find these hidden gems and turn them into great players. And I, I when I read the piece, I started thinking about other teams as well, and I don't think that Wenger is actually or Arsenal have lost the ability to identify these potentially good players. I think what's happened is it's a different. I, th- I think what was happening before was Wenger and Arsenal could go out and sign players, and they could put them into a winning, confident. Well structured environment, and now they've lost that, and they're becoming you know like an upscale kind of Newcastle or Sunderland where every new player they sign turns to crap. And you look at you know, we we started off this conversation um, talking about Mo Salah, but that's that you look at Klopp with Salah, Sani. from Some of these players that have been saying, let's forget about the goalkeepers just now and the centre backs, but certainly going forward, the confidence players, he's been able to put them into, a, a, into a system where they seem to thrive, and I, I think that's where Arsenal have lost it. I don't think I don't think we can really judge whether these players are great players or not, are very are very good and very competent players, because they're just a team that are that, that are kind of shattered at the moment, and they have been for the last couple of years intermittently, they kind of come out with great displays and displays that have you thinking well maybe they're back on track but invariably as soon as they turn the corner they hit
2: another brick wall. I mean I think that there's at one stage Danny Welbeck came off the bench and remember when Welbeck was signed by Wenger, Wenger said, he was actually really open about it, well we actually wanted him on loan and then United had actually said oh you you can have him on a permanent deal if you want and Wenger kind of shrugged and said yeah okay fair enough you know, you think of the previous recruitment drives where you go out. You're very specific about um, the players that you want to bring into that club. I think it's 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 changed now with Arsenal. Um, you're not proactively going out there to try and and uh, um, but I mean, that may be harsh. That's it's you know you you're, you're uh, there's obviously a lot of scouting going on behind the scenes where they are trying to unearth um, players. But as you said, those young players. I mean, if they if they have a decision to make in terms of joining Arsenal or Man City which are they going to go to? Um, I mean, that was the big surprise about Ozil actually signing that new contract. I mean, I was convinced that he was gone. Um, they, they somehow managed to, to keep a hold of him. Um, you thought, we talked about on the podcast, that the Sanchez deal could actually reflect well on Arsenal in terms of um, the players that they got in return, Mkhitaryan and Aubameyang. Um, but what's happened is the rot is is, is too big. Um, you saw the body language of, of those players and I'm not big into that, to be honest. You know, in terms of gossip magazines and people going, "Oh, the body language of this Hollywood couple. What does it tell us about their relationship?" Um, but what you do want is you do want a bit of heart and determination. Um, and there's just instead, it's just, it's just lifeless. It, and and I think that there's a kind of a, a an implied shrug of the shoulders, you know, to to what Arsenal are experiencing at the moment. It's well, what what kind of what do you expect? I mean, is is the likes of Alex Awobi? Going to suddenly go on an absolute streak where he becomes one of Europe's top players. Um, is Welbeck suddenly going to you know start performing? Is um, you know so ultimately it comes back to what you were saying in terms of what's the plan? Wenger always seemed to be a man because of he was an economics major, someone who always thought of plans, someone who always was prepared, um, and you don't really get that feeling anymore. And I think Arsenal have have a situation now where they've almost been reactive they've now turned into a reactive club instead of going out there and making things happen themselves now they're just following um based on what other people have have been doing you know they have a club interested in one of their players okay well now we have to go and react to selling sanchez you know it was it didn't it it didn't seem for a second that obama yang or mkhitaryan were priorities it just seemed that well what else are we going to do um, and you know they, they 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 bring those into the club, but it it doesn't seem that um, it was a thought out strategy, and I think that that's the big difference. I mean, I, w- I was watching after that game today. Uh, there was a classic Premier League on one of the channels on TV, and it was a game from two thousand and six, and it was Arsenal against Man City. And I mean, you know, the Man City lineup was Distan, Richard Dunn, you know, Didi Haman, Demarcus Beasley, Darius Vassell. <laughs> Um, and Arsenal was Bayor, I think Van Persie was injured. Henri was injured that day. Um, but you know there was Diaby. Um, you know you, you go back even as far as 2006. I think that there was there was rumblings as far back as then that they were being usurped in terms of how they were doing things. Um, and essentially, you know what always happens is you're a revolutionary. Someone comes along, and steals your ideas. And then you're not a revolutionary anymore, and you just fall in line with other people and what they're doing. Um, and it's it's sad. It's sad that it's becoming more difficult to defend Wenger. Um, it's it's annoying that uh, and frustrating that we both kind of have to throw our hands up to heaven and say, "Well, start with a clean sheet." Yeah, we're 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 at that stage now where it's all a bit inevitable, and you don't want Wenger to leave like this. You don't want Wenger to leave with. Uh, a really patchy um, last few seasons. Fan frustration and anger.
1: But it's gonna, it's gonna happen. It's, it's written now, right? The only thing they can do possibly to redeem themselves this season is win Europa League, and that team doesn't look like it's got the potential to win the Europa League. When you see the other teams that they're going to be playing against.
2: I think it would be a minor miracle if they finish the season with a trophy. To be honest, I, I just think that yeah. sometimes you, sometimes you, you pick up on. Uh, the trajectory of a club and I think like we said you know sometimes you're good enough and, and if you're a good enough coach you can paper the cracks and you can you can figure something out in the, in the short term but it comes back to being reactive now right I mean it comes back to being reactive will only get you to a certain to a certain level um, and the Arsenal aren't at the front of any queue anymore and I think that that's that 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 just only adds you know further uh, inevitability to to how all this is going to end probably yeah
1: so that brings us to the end of part 3 and we are going to be back in a couple of seconds with part 4 and uh, we'll be bringing in uh, producer Luke Crawford who will correct me on some of my uh, some of my statements from earlier in the show
0: you're listening to soccer report extra Keep up to speed with the podcast and get all the latest news, musings, and rants from Bobby and Owen by liking us on Facebook at Soccer Report Extra. Now back to the show. Luke,
1: are you there? The voice of truth.
0: Yeah, I'm here, Bobby. <clears throat> I just wanted—I okay. just wanted to get back to the the Olympics uh, chat and <laughs> curling, yes. and not maybe being able to find some uh, a sheet of ice in say Alabama or Tennessee to. Uh, you know to develop the skills needed to win an olympic gold medal uh... in curling so but i did do a quick little uh, google search and found that in alabama there are fifty eight ice rinks
1: fifty eight
0: but the pelham civic center in birmingham has two nhl size rinks within the same facility so really there's fifty nine but none of them dedicated to or that i could find any curling clubs so no real curling culture in alabama but in tennessee you head to the ice chalet in knoxville nice you can do some looks like quasi curling it almost looks like jam pail curling do you ever do that bobby jam pail curling
1: no but that's i a, know that's a I canadian game yes
0: that's where you uh either fill a fill a jam pail and with water let it freeze and you have these buckets with handles that you uh uh shoot along the ice on your own homemade uh ice uh, surface for for curling
2: this does sound like the most canadian game i've ever fucking heard of in my life
1: and and sometimes it's played
2: indoors yeah exactly like in the house yeah yeah, for sure when it gets really cold (laughs) good grief (laughs) it's like 1840s fucking ireland i thought you were supposed to be a developed country (laughs)
0: What we used to do in my hometown in Thompson is we would take big logs and they would cut slices off that were about eight inches thick. So the thing weighed about five pounds and we would drive a big nail in the top of it, bend it over at a 90 degree and make sets and paint them different colors. And then, yeah, have competitions in like 40 below during our winter carnival called Jam Pale Curling. So, uh, we were also talking about uh, Mo Salah and how his uh, goal scoring uh, to date compares to Luis Suarez from the 2013 14 season. So, uh, as it's well, Suarez uh, ended up scoring 31 goals total, but he did miss the first five games of the season because of the 10 game ban that he received for his bite on. um, Ivanovic <laughs> Suarez ended up scoring 22 goals in his first 18 appearances that season and then scored another 9 in the remaining 17 um, but after f- after 18 games uh, Salah only scored 14 so uh, the um, Suarez had uh, a goal every 73.5 minutes uh, Salah only a uh, goal every 107 minutes uh, and after twenty-eight oh, rounds, so at this point in the season, Suarez had twenty-nine goals, and Salah is sitting at twenty-three. So, hmm. so that's how they compare. I think he's
1: behind Harry Kane, isn't he? Harry Kane and, and has, Harry Kane has f-
0: twenty-four goals, I believe, at, the, at this moment. Yeah. And that's that's really all I had uh, for this for this podcast. Was uh, I I really tried to find some curling culture down in the deep south, and eh, there's a little bit there in Knoxville, Tennessee. Shout out to the ice Shelley. Yeah so That's if it.
1: if you're uh, aware of if you're aware of uh, and you're sitting in the southern part of the United States and you are a member of a curling rink just drop Owen Ian an email and mo we'll give you a shout out to your <laughs> curling club next week absolutely <laughs> who knows the next thing we might have an Irish uh, an Irish team in the uh, in curling in, in Pe- Beijing in two-
2: 2022 could be the O'Callaghan yeah, rink my missus has always said that her mum is uh, one of the best sweepers that she's ever seen in her life <laughs> I mean she does an amazing job in the back garden uh, back home I mean she gets she covers so much uh, space in such a short amount of time uh, also just on a curling thing it does remind me of one of the greatest uh, hairdressing salons um, in uh, Cork when I was growing up it was called uh, curl up and die <laughs>
0: So I think the shout-outs should be for curling clubs or curling affiliations, and we'll give shout-outs for that. but all, And also, if if you've ever been involved in pairs figure skating it, at any level, I think we should probably give shout-outs for that too.
1: Any level, I think that's worth it as well. So that brings us to the end of our uh, dis- this edition of the Soccer Report Extra podcast. Uh, on behalf of Luke Crawford, Ono Callahan, and myself, Boy McMahon, thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us again next week. For who's
0: so keen to Thanks for listening to Soccer Report Extra. To keep tabs on the podcast and get all the latest news, musings, and rants from Bobby and Owen, like us on Facebook at Soccer Report Extra. Music for this podcast graciously provided by Manitoba's hottest indie pop group, Misery Slims. Check them out on Spotify and YouTube and follow the band on Facebook at Misery Slims.